Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, the woke media did what it does best last week, destroyed the reputations of three previously respected men on the basis of flimsy evidence while giving them virtually no right of reply. The way this sort of drama plays out in the media these days is both inevitable and frightening. The price paid by individuals who should be considered innocent until proven guilty is inconsequential to journalists chasing clicks and opportunities to signal their virtues. The allegations on this occasion were made against Alastair Clarkson, who had coached the Hawthorne AFL Football Club to four premierships in the 17 years to 2021, and Chris Fagan, his deputy for part of that time, who is now the senior coach of the Brisbane Lions. The timing was conspicuous, coming in the week when many Australians were getting excited about the AFL Grand Final on Saturday. The allegations were heinous. Clarkson, Fagan and another staff member, Jason Burt, allegedly pressured some young Indigenous players to break up with their partners. One player's girlfriend was pressured to abort a pregnancy, which she did. On another occasion, Clarkson and other Hawthorne staff allegedly drove a young Indigenous player to the house he shared with his pregnant girlfriend, collected his things and helped him move out. The girlfriend later miscarried. Her alleged attempts to contact the father through the club, even via the police, all failed. These allegations are heartbreaking if they're true. But there are many aspects to these stories that are just as disturbing regardless of whether the allegations are true or not. Firstly, the ABC story was based on an independent investigation commissioned by the Hawthorne Football Club that interviewed, interviewed the accusers, but not the accused. The report is still not published, but somehow the ABC was able to interview some of the people featured in it. Worse, the ABC did not identify the accusers, but did identify the accused. And the ABC mostly dispensed with the legally polite caveat that these were allegations. Instead, it reported the allegations almost entirely as undisputed facts. When I started in journalism over 30 years ago, it was standard practice in situations like this to adopt a similar approach to the one taken in criminal trials. That is, assume innocence until proven otherwise and 
Grant accuses anonymity in only the most extenuating circumstances. We did this because it was the decent thing to do and because the laws of defamation could impose serious penalties if we were wrong. Neither of these standards applies so much anymore. These days, it's not only acceptable to air allegations of racism, it's positively encouraged. It begins a cycle that generates enormous amounts of clicks and newspaper sales as the commentators subsequently join the pile on. Gideon Hay, for example, who is normally a very clever and observant journalist, sports journalist for The Australian, gave the allegations substantial credence two days after the ABC's first report. He said, quote, What should disturb football is not so much that the stories are outlandish or incredible, but the opposite, that they fall comfortably within the bounds of the conceivable, unquote. Hay also said the nature of the investigation which was the result of an investigator seeking testimony rather than accusers speaking out of their own volition, meant there was, quote unquote, no sense in Clarkson, Fagan and Burt complaining about a lack of due process. One wonders if he would be so nonchalant if untested allegations were ever made against someone he knew or cared about. He said that even if additional context or mitigating factors come to light, the substance of the allegations would be, quote, hard to shift, unquote. Really? How does he know this? What if the allegations are entirely untrue? I'm not saying they are, but as long as this remains a possibility, and it does, then decency requires everyone to exercise restraint in discussing them. Hay isn't alone, though. Mark Robinson in The Herald Sun described the investigation as a, quote, truth-telling exercise, unquote. Again, how does he know the allegations are true? Robinson said Clarkson and Fagan would eventually be allowed to give their version to the AFL's own investigation, but admitted that it was probably too late for that to save them. He said, quote, Already their names are besmirched because of the allegation, mud sticks. It's the utterly unfair component of dealing with allegations that the allegation can never be publicly withdrawn, unquote. Well, no, it can't, especially after it's been described as a truth-telling exercise by prominent journalists like Mark Robinson. Secondly, many of the people making these allegations complied with them in one way or another. One player's wife allegedly agreed to abort her pregnancy. Another player allegedly went with Clarkson and others to break up with his pregnant girlfriend. The complicity of the accusers is another reason to be skeptical about believing only their side of the story. The motivation of the accusers is, at best, unclear. The fact that Clarkson, Fagan and Burt were not interviewed by the Independent Enquirer should ring very loud alarm bells to even the most casual observer, let alone influential commentators. Thirdly, and most importantly, the entire story is presented as an example of racism. 
But there's no example, there's no evidence of this. The ABC story repeatedly reminds the reader that the alleged victims are Indigenous. Quote, club staff allegedly bullied and removed First Nations players from their homes and relocated them elsewhere, telling them to choose between their careers and their families. Really? There are two things here. Football clubs expect their players to be tough because it's a tough game. It's not ballroom dancing. But no club is going to wrench a young man from his family gratuitously. AFL clubs, as a rule, value the strength a young player gets from being part of a strong family. To make a player choose between family and career doesn't, on the surface, make any sense. But nobody's bothered to doubt this allegation. Why is that? Clarkson's career is now on hold. Fagan's club has stood by him. There is a conspicuous lack of public support for either of them from past players and colleagues. That can mean only two things. Either racism is still widespread in the AFL, which given the sport's emphatic advo advocacy against racism, seems highly unlikely, or that people are so afraid of being tarred by the same brush that they just keep their heads down. Neither of these scenarios reflects an environment that anybody would want to work in. Well, the brilliant new Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampajinpa-Price completely confounded Labor's Senator Katie Gallagher in the Senate this month by asking her a very basic question. Who will be the Indigenous spokespeople on the proposed voice to Parliament? How will they be selected? And what powers will they have? Gallagher's reply was as big on detail as it was on rhetorical flourish. Engaging. There is an opportunity here to do something uh, nation building, uh, something inclusive, uh, something that wrongs of, uh, or rights a previous wrong. Uh, and a lot of, and a lot of work needs to be done. This Senate has a role to play in that. A lot of work needs to be done, all right. In a minute, I'll get Senator Nampajinpa Price to provide us with an update on that debate. But first, a school in Alice Springs is asking the federal government to honour a commitment made by the previous government to pay for on-site accommodation for staff and students. Credit to the ABC and Alice Springs for covering this story. It is reporting that the new government won't commit to the proposal because all funding applications need to go through the proper channels. Senator Price says the crime rate in Alice Springs is sky high and many of the troublemakers are young kids roaming the streets at night without supervision. This accommodation would, she says, be a give troubled kids an opportunity to break out of the cycle of truancy and crime and would offer young women a refuge away from the threat of sexual violence. As if any young women in Australia need to be protected from that. Anyway, it is impossible to imagine any bureaucrat or politician finding a valid reason why this money can't be found. Let's bring in Senator Nampajinpa Price to ask where it's at. Senator, welcome. Thank you for having me once again, Fred. So tell us where this proposal for the uh, school accommodation came from and where it's at now. 
So in the lead up to uh, the federal election, I had many conversations around the Northern Territory about what the needs might be for various different um, projects. Uh, this particular one was was stood out for me because uh, the Yipparinya Primary School is not just any school, it's not just any independent school either. It is a school that primarily uh, is focused on uh, Indigenous students and students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So the Indigenous students at this school come from the surrounding town camps uh, within Alice Springs. It's also the Indigenous students that, uh, you know, that, that the main schools, that the, the primary schools find difficult uh, to school. So they are sent to um, Yipparinya School. It also takes care of kids from some of the um, communities nearby. When I say nearby, I mean, you know, as close as 80 to 100 kilometres away. So these kids are doing, um, are coming in on the bus early in the morning, uh, spending an hour on that bus each way uh, at, from Bush and coming to do their schooling. So ideally, uh, being able to put, provide these kids with accommodation on site uh, allows them to focus on their education, on their schooling, uh, and allowing for the opportunity for uh, their teachers to be able to be there as well, provides a focus for them. And a lot of these kids come from really dysfunctional backgrounds. Uh, their homes in the town camps are, well, now littered with alcohol because there's the alcohol bans have been lifted. We have a huge crime problem, a youth crime issue in our community. We have children as young as 10 years old, uh, even younger, breaking into people's homes. And um, the reason for this is because it's just not safe being at their own homes. And so they spend all night out on the streets uh, instead of in bed like like my children have, have been mm. able to do so when they were younger. Other people's children have, are able to do so, uh, to wake up, to have a, a healthy breakfast and to be able to go off to school and have all the resources that they need for their education. Um, these kids don't have that. So this provides that opportunity for them. It speaks to the huge crime issue. It speaks to providing safety, not just for the kids, but also for the Indigenous uh, staff that also work at the school. Can you tell us more about Yipparinya? What is, um, who's behind it and is it the only school of its type in the Territory? Yes, it is uh, the only school of its of its kind in the Northern Territory. Uh, the principal, Gavin Morris, uh, ha has come in, uh, has started at the end of last year in his role, and he has been putting changes in place to ensure that these kids have better outcomes. And part of that was this proposal uh, for the for the accommodation. Uh, he's also uh, managed to kick off a, uh, a sunset um, school program. So basically these kids are allowed to come in, start at nine o'clock, but they go a bit um, longer in the afternoon because some of these kids, as I've mentioned, um, have very late nights. They, don't, have, they get, don't get a good enough sleep. So if they can start a little bit later in the day, uh, it, it sort of speaks to their needs. Uh, and it also teaches four of the main uh, Aboriginal languages. Uh, so Warpri, the language from my my people, my family, is is taught there. Uh, Aranda, Pitinjara, 
uh, and I believe Luritja is the other other language that is taught there. So it's a bilingual school. It's a school that um, is shaped around the needs uh, of these kids uh, who have very unique circumstances in comparison to other kids around the country. So these kids are coming from among the most disadvantaged uh, households in the nation. What sort of motivation do they have to lift themselves out of that? Are you finding that among these kids, there's a natural ambition to improve their lot in life? Look, I think if these kids are given a glimpse of what that might look like, their natural instinct is to want that. Uh, for a lot of these kids, uh, you know, some of these kids come from the fact that they were born with uh, alcohol um, fetal um, disorder. Uh, so they have unique learning problems. A lot of these kids have uh, otitis media uh, and hearing issues. So there's a whole raft of issues that uh, impede their ability to learn more effectively than what other kids might. But this school uh, has, the principal of this school has put in place measures to, to deal with those sorts of things. Um, and and really, there is only this, it's only this kind of school that offers that opportunity to um, provide an alternative for these kids because uh, ultimately a lot of these kids will end up either down the road of incarceration eventually uh, or uh, end up, you know, becoming addicts themselves, uh, end up in ending their lives earlier um, than, you know, the average Australian um, because of a, a raft of many issues that face, you know, Indigenous kids in these circumstances. So it does provide a glimmer of hope uh, for these kids and it is so important right now and it, it's a no-brainer really for this federal government to get behind if they truly support our marginalised Indigenous kids in this country. This is something, this is an opportunity they would jump at ensuring to make sure that it gets funded. I mean, they get the kudos for it uh, if, if, if they fund it. Uh, you don't need a voice to Parliament um, to indicate that this is one of the most important projects they should be ensuring is funded in this uh, in this up and coming budget. It sounds like the only voice that matters right now is yours, Jacinta. I mean, good luck pushing for that. And uh, we will keep on top of that here at this show. It sounds like a very, very worthwhile project. Now, you're also proposing to introduce a private member's bill to curb alcohol consumption in some of the townships. How bad are things out there now? It's horrific. Um, you know, there are there are community members who feel as though who have stated to me um, that since the introduction of alcohol, very horrible things have occurred in the lives of in their lives and in their families' lives. I'll give you an example: uh, the the recent um, murder homicide of the young mother and her four-month-old baby. Her her uncle uh, has plainly said to me. It is, it is his deeply held belief that the, the very day that the alcohol bans were lifted in the Northern Territory is the day that uh, his niece was killed and, and his niece's baby was killed. Um, and, and that's what he sees as a connection for him. That's what he stated to me. But there's a lot going on. I've been receiving phone calls from some of the um, surrounding communities 
the community of Yundamu, my family's community, uh, where there are family feuds now flaring up. Uh, there are families who are fleeing from communities like Yundamu, not just Yundamu, but a nearby community of Nirpi. Um, and children, uh, you know, their lives are in upheaval now as a result because they can't stick around in the community, they can't go to school um, because of the violence that's going on in those communities and it's being fuelled by alcohol. But we knew, you know, we didn't need a, a crystal ball to know that this would be the immediate impact of lifting uh, those ban those alcohol bans and it just absolutely, I just find it absolutely gobsmacking that the, the Territory Labor government uh, chose the rights of drinkers over the rights of these vulnerable people. I think the only the, the only surprising thing is just how quickly it all happened. I did, it it seemed, sounds like it almost happened overnight. So how would your bill work? It's a federal bill that would override the Territory, I presume. And how soon can you get it in and how effective do you think it will be? Well, tomorrow I'll be introducing my motion um, to the Senate. Uh, of my intention uh, to introduce the bill uh, come late October sittings. Um, I have been in conversations with the Labor member for Lingiari, Marion Scrimgeour, who has expressed her support. Uh, and today I'll also be meeting with the other Senator of the Northern Territory, Melandiri McCarthy. Um, Marion herself has spoken uh, in her first speech to Parliament about her deeply held concerns for the lifting of these alcohol bans. Uh, so I truly do, do hope that she's sincere in her support uh, with this bill uh, going forward because what it'll do is it'll put a handbrake on the availability of alcohol in these vulnerable communities until such time as, a, you know, a territory government has put in the, the appropriate framework uh, followed by the... Um, thorough consultation of community members uh, who are affected by alcohol in their communities. So until such time as the framework is in place that, um, you know, appropriate al alcohol consumption can take place, um, education and all those things are put in place within these communities, uh, that, when that, that when that occurs, that is when responsibility will be handed back to a territory government. So whether it's this current Labor government, which I don't think has the maturity um, to actually uh, do this, and they've demonstrated that by simply lifting um, the alcohol restrictions and allowing communities to suffer, but whether it's a future territory government, um, but this is what it's about. So whatever territory government uh, of, of the time demonstrates that they have the capability to do this properly, that is when uh, responsibility will be handed back. But until such time, um, this bill proposes to provide that handbrake uh, and, um, you know, to those communities that are suffering now that alcohol is available back out in them. How much political support do you need in Canberra to get this bill through? Well, I would hope to think that in the Senate, um, if if I if, if I can get the support of Labor, then that that would ensure this. Uh, you know, I'd only need uh, I'd need, of course, I've got my coalition party uh, members who are in in 
in support of myself and the bill. Uh, I've got the if if I can gain the support of the independents, uh, and and of course One Nation would no doubt support me. All I'd need is one more. Uh, one more person across the other side of the chamber to say, yes, let's save lives um, to, uh, to be able to get this bill across. Um, that's what I'm hoping for because really what else, what else is there to lose? Well, I mean, it, sound, really. it sounds incredibly frustrating because the, the solutions you're offering sound very effective and very simple. I mean, get kids off the streets by giving them a warm, a warm bed at night and stop selling grog in the townships. I mean, these are simple, direct solutions. How It must be very frustrating, Jacinta. I'm surprised I've still got a full head of hair. <laughs> I feel like I've been pulling it out um, um, recently. And um, all I've got to do is just, you know, keep fighting. I, I really need to keep fighting for these vulnerable individuals, you know, people, people that I've been having to bury all my life because of, uh, you know, the consequences that they face uh, because of alcohol, because of poor policy, um, because the uh, the human rights of perpetrators is prioritised over the human rights of vulnerable uh, victims in these communities. So I won't stop fighting and I'll hold this government to account uh, if they continue to let down these people. Well, we won't stop talking about it here on ADH either. And just quickly before you go, Jacinta, the ABC has published some very serious allegations about the way Hawthorne AFL coaches Alastair Clarkson and Chris Fagan managed some Indigenous players over the past few years. The people who made the allegations were allowed to remain anonymous, but Clarkson and Fagan were identified, and the, the allegations against them are, are, to put it mildly, quite heinous. But do you think the fact that the, the accusers remained anonymous and the accused were identified, is that fair? Look, I, I, I seriously, I don't feel that it is fair. I mean, people should be regarded as innocent until proven guilty. You know, if if a process had taken place, an investigation had taken place, and the outcome found that this was, in, in fact, the allegations were true and that they had done the wrong thing, then I could accept them being called out. But, you know, it, I mean, it's very typical of the ABC to do things, um, you know, the opposite way around and condemn um people before there's any proof uh, that they may in fact be guilty or not. So, you know, I mean, this is this is a continuation of the witch hunts that we've seen in recent times, uh, particularly uh, given that now this idea of, you know, racism uh, is a hot topic and, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's considered a crime um, to, to appear to be racist or to be accused um, of being racist. I mean, I saw some of the allegations and... Um, I, I don't, even if the allegations were true, I don't know if um, they speak directly to racism. If they were true, I think they'd speak directly to um, misconduct and, um, you know, very poor behaviour and treatment of players. Uh, but I, would, I wouldn't necessarily regard it uh, as um, racist if they were, in fact, true allegations from what I have seen. But Again, innocent until proven guilty. Exactly. That's, that's why we've got systems in place. Exactly. To, those to find principles. These are, those principles are older than you and I, Jacinta. Jacinta, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Jacinta Nampajimpa Price, who will be speaking at the CPAC conference in Sydney this weekend, alongside Nigel Farage, Zuby, Zion Lights, Tony Abbott, and fellow senators Matt Canavan and Alex Antich. To buy tickets, go to cpac.network.
Well, after centuries of bigotry, Oxford University has finally hired its very own Chief Diversity Officer. Ho-hum, I hear you say. And yes, there's nothing unusual about academics abandoning the traditions of merit on which their institutions were founded and hiring a commissar to oversee groovy new diversity quotas, even if they are from one of the oldest and formerly most prestigious campuses in Christendom. But wait till you hear who Oxford, Oxford's new chi Chief Diversity Officer is. It's our very own former Australian Race Discrimination Commissioner, Tim Supomasani. In its announcement, Oxford University said Supomasani had, in his previous role, led Australia's, quote, anti-racism strategy and various initiatives on diversity and leadership, unquote. Well, perhaps he did, but he also led an anti-free speech strategy and at least one initiative to whip up rabid mob hatred. Supomisani, you will recall, was one of the people who deliberately misinterpreted the famous Bill Leake cartoon of 2016, which accurately depicted the main cause of juvenile delinquency among Indigenous kids, the breakdown of the family unit. This was, and still is, a desperately heartbreaking phenomenon. But that's not how Supomasani saw Leek's cartoon. He was more outraged by Leek daring to draw an unflattering image of an Aboriginal man. On the day the cartoon was published, Supomasani was quoted saying, the cartoon racially stereotyped Aboriginal men and anyone offended by it should lodge a complaint with his Royal Human Rights Commission. The mob leapt into action. Leek was vilified mercilessly on social media for being racist and was tied up in an exhausting legal battle with the AHRC for most of the, his remaining seven months on earth before dying of a heart attack in March 2017. For a man with such a track record, Supamasani's new gig at Oxford should be like shooting fish in a barrel. His new job will be to quote, address racism, tackle bullying, increase the proportion of black and ethnic people in senior academic research and professional roles, and close the ethnic ethnicity pay gap. In other words, all he has to do is accuse Oxford of struggling to abandon its colonial past, appoint a few fellow woke coloured people in senior roles, and wait for the media and the dons to pat him on the back for his brave work. But will he defend the world's truly most oppressed people? You see, three years ago, Oxford University awarded a rare honorary qualification to a Chinese businessman linked to the Communist Party. The honorary qualification was later admitted to be, quote, meaningless. This suggests the university is, like many universities these days, significantly reliant on CCP money. I'm sure this will be one of the first items on Supamasani's agenda. If he truly cares about equality, he will insist on quotas for Uyghurs, Tibetans, Falun Gong members, and other minorities when the university hands out its 20 annual Chinese Oxford scholarships. If not, then Supamasani runs the risk of being mistaken for a shameless, pious hypocrite. Over to you, Tim. We look forward to you bravely defending the truly oppressed at Oxford University as passionately 
as you vilified Bill Leake. Well, the Victorian state government, led by Premier Dan Andrews, is sitting on two independent investigations into its COVID lockdowns, which were some of the harshest in the world. And the government won't release these reports until after the state election in November. If those reports gave the state government a comprehensive tick of approval, you can guarantee they'd be centre stage throughout the next two months of the election campaign. The fact that they are being hidden, therefore, makes you wonder what damning information and conclusions they contain. Well, wonder no more, because the Institute of Public Affairs has also done two reports into the lockdown, and they were released to the public last week. To quote from one of them, quote, this report demonstrates that far more years of life will be lost due to the restrictions that have been, than have been saved. Unquote. In other words, Dan Andrews' government's harsh authoritarian policies did more harm than good. Let's get the executive director of the IPA, Scott Hargraves, in to talk about these reports. Scott, welcome. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for having me on the program. Pleasure. Scott, the first of these reports, titled Hard Lessons, says that Australia suffered a net economic loss of $260 billion between March 2020 and June 2022. Of this, $111 billion, or almost half, was suffered in Victoria alone. I think it's fair to say that the harsher the lockdown, the worse the net suffering by citizens. Is that right? Well, that's exactly right, Fred. It's an indictment on governments around Australia that not only did they not ever conduct a cost-benefit analysis before they implemented lockdowns, they haven't done it afterwards. They're not really interested in a reckoning of the cost it imposed on the community. And in Victoria, those costs are disproportionately large. As you say, the lockdowns here encompass more of the activity of everyday life, more economic activity. The guys from Jim's Mowing weren't even allowed to fulfil their contracts to mow the lawns of little old ladies outside, even though government contractors were. And of course, the lockdowns lasted longer. So that's why the IPA did do the cost-benefit analysis that governments won't, and also why we found that Victoria's share of that total loss was actually much greater than it should have been. Well, speaking of that, it, I mean, it's difficult to recall now because the last two years have this kind of weird, hazy memory to them, but it's difficult to recall now why some states suffered more than others. Was Victoria's lockdown anything to do with the virus or was it simply because the Andrews government was more inclined to be oppressive and dictatorial? An interesting question, Fred. Just last week we had at an IPA event in Melbourne, Professor Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford University, uh, very much a professional in the field. And as he said, at the time, governments had choices. Uh, we saw Sweden, for instance, made very different choices. Our official pandemic plans all had a variant of what was called focused protection. Let's look after the most vulnerable in our community. But instead, our governments made different choices. They seemed to be inspired not by what was in their own pandemic management plans, but by what they'd seen on TV that was taking place in China, where lockdowns had been the tool of choice for governments. And it did seem that in Victoria in particular, that was the one tool that gov the government seemed to be interested in to the exclusion of all others. Well, they all, throughout all this, they all kept saying, oh, we're following the science and we've got scientific advice. 
Well, they didn't take Jay Bhattacharya's advice in the Great Barrington Declaration to stop locking people down and simply protect the vulnerable, did they? Well, that's right. Uh, so that was tabled in October 2020. Uh, I think we've all had some sympathy, Fred, for the decisions that governments made, you know, in the immediate weeks and months, uh, maybe the first month of the uh, so-called uh, pandemic that was taking place. Um, but certainly by October of 2020, by Christmas of that year, all of those justifications had fallen away. But they kept making the same choice. They were, they were locked into it and they didn't want to have to admit that they were wrong. Well, and they, they kept doubling down, as it says in your other report, which is um, titled The Crime of Criminalising Everyday Life. It sounds, um, it, it, it sounds frightening, really. It's Kafka-esque, really. Says the number, this, this report says the number of new laws created at the whim of Victoria's Chief Health Officer during the pandemic and the speed with which they were implemented were unprecedented. That's the word that's used in the report. Those laws extingu extinguished fundamental freedoms of expression and movement. Did you find any basis in, in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight, did you find any basis for these laws to be enacted? Uh, no, we didn't, Fred. It was, and it was uh, written uh, by a, uh, a professor of law, uh, Mirko Begaric, and uh, his point was, quite rightly, that the criminal law is meant to be reserved for the most heinous of offences. We, we use the criminal law uh, for, for murders, for rapes, for robberies, for burglaries. Um, but in this case, it was applied to the realm of public health where traditionally uh, public health practitioners and governments work with the population. They educate the population. They lead them. And in, in Australia, we actually had a public that was very interested, perhaps, you know, too interested in uh, all the th things that could go wrong uh, with the virus that was sweeping the world. And so the scope for a public education campaign was very large. Instead, what we had in Victoria was the full force of criminal law on things like, you know, walking in groups of, of more than two, being out after 8pm. Uh, children were being fined more than $1,000 for playing tennis uh, and actually subject to criminal sanction. So there was never any basis for using the criminal law in that way. So, but uh, just to be clear, with the benefit of hindsight, it's, there was no basis. Was there any basis for them at the time? Well, like I say, the, there was the basis for public health orders uh, to be made. That's, that's uh, a standard provision and uh, some sort of public health orders might have been missioned, but they should not have been uh, uh, criminalised. Uh, ordinary Victorians should not have been criminalising for things that really were just, you know, ordinances and, and guidance to be issued by public health officers. So the alternative you're saying should have been a public education campaign, not criminalising everyday behaviour, just educate the public and let them make their own decisions, you know, for their own benefit or for their own health. Exactly. Trust, trust in the people of Australia. Trust in the people of Victoria would have been a much better approach. And, and we would have seen then, uh, we wouldn't have seen this uh, loss of trust uh, in the institutions in Victoria that we've subsequently seen. It's a, it's a reciprocal process, the relationship between uh, governments and, and the public at large. And, and that relationship was really, was really broken at that moment. Yeah, we'll get to the, uh, the statistics about the uh, opinion Victorians have of their police force in a minute. But just before then, the, the Victorian government, has, has the Victorian government ever acknowledged that it trampled over long-established parliamentary checks and balances and fundamental freedoms? 
Uh, no, they haven't. And uh, not even, in fact, have the, uh, the, the taxpayer-funded protectors uh, of our human rights uh, in Victoria, the, uh, the, the Human Rights Commission, has, has basically waved through all the measures that have been done. Uh, parliaments, of course, were prevented from scrutinising much of this. Uh, certainly any power they had to uh, annul or review the public health orders were, were taken away, and that's when Parliament was allowed to sit at all. Um, there's been nothing from, from government itself to ever suggest that they, they regret any of these actions. It just comes back to think tanks like the IPA to shine a light on this. I mean, as you point out, not even the human rights commissions, and there, we have half a dozen of them in the country, were up in arms about this. It's quite astonishing, really, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, when we saw Zoe Bueller, uh, that terrible footage of her uh, at Ballarat, uh, mother being handcuffed and arrested in her own kitchen in her own home in front of her children for a Facebook post. And that was the opportunity then um, that those human rights commissions had to say enough is enough, this is just outrageous, uh, but that never came. Well, I'd like to read you a sentence from the second report, Criminalising Everyday Behaviour. Uh, and I find it chilling. And the quote is, quote, millions of people who had meticulously observed the criminal law all their lives were suddenly under active purview of police for engaging in what was previously routine and harmless conduct, unquote. Now, to their credit, most of the Victorians who were fined for what was previously harmless conduct haven't paid the fines. Good on them. <laughs> Scott, how many fines were issued and how many are outstanding? Over 50,000 fines were issued during the pandemic in Victoria and the information we have suggests that about half of those, maybe slightly more than half, uh, remain unpaid. Wow. Well, well, what should happen next? I mean, should those fines just be, you know, should the, the, those fines just be lifted? Yeah, well... The IPA has called for a gen general amnesty on those fines, Fred, because as we say, there was never any business for getting the criminal law involved in that. And certainly those who are not paying, we think they're actually uh, issuing their own, their own silent protest. And what's happening now is it's descended into a bit of a ridiculous ad hoc uh, situation in Victoria. Uh, we read at one stage that the Black Lives Matter protest organisers, they were going to have uh, the charges against them withdrawn. But then the next day, they decided to proceed after all. Out of the blue, Zoe Bueller, having waited nearly two years uh, to be told what her fate was to be, was informed that those charges were going to be withdrawn. So there's clearly some knowledge in the depths of the uh, state of Victoria that these fines were outrageous, they're impossible to prosecute if they were ever tested in court. Um, this is the time for a general amnesty to say, let's tr start the process of rebuilding trust in our state institutions. And any fines that have been paid should be refunded. Scott, as every authoritarian knows, the process is the punishment. You should know that. <laughs> now, this has led to a serious drop in the public's perception of the police. How much did, the, uh, how much did this drop during the pandemic, Scott? Well, the polling in indicates that the approval rating for the police in Victoria has plummeted, Fred, from 76% to 42%. Uh, and it's public knowledge that they're now having uh, terrible trouble recruiting new officers. And uh, almost certainly this relates to, to the perception 
Uh, we had many resignations uh, by principled officers uh, during the pandemic who refused to uh, enforce uh, those uh, laws that we were just discussing. So this is a, a crisis that uh, even the police association here is really quite worried about. Okay, and before you go, Scott, the bookies are still giving short odds for Dan Andrews to be returned after the election. To people outside Victoria, this, this is just almost impossible to understand. How anybody could even contemplate voting for these authoritarians is uh, almost incomprehensible. Can you explain it to us, Scott? Well, there's two interesting things in Victoria, of course, is uh, not only is uh, Dan Andrews a very focused uh, communicator who's very happy to dominate the airwaves, but there's a, there's a government-funded communication machine behind that uh, which amplifies those messages. And the other thing, uh, there are laws uh, which the IPA opposed which have made it very, very difficult for new parties who might wish to, might wish to engage in the forthcoming Victorian election to get going because uh, individuals are prevented from donating more than $1,000. There are criminal sanctions uh, for the organisers of new parties if they uh, don't dot their I's and cross their T's. And um, this has led to what's been described as a $100 million brick wall preventing new parties getting any traction in the forthcoming campaign. Sounds like the only freedom left to Victorians is to leave the state. Scott Hargraves, thanks for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's Institute of Public Affairs Executive Director Scott Hargraves. And if you want to read those two reports, you can find them on their website, ipa.org.au. And just before I go, how about this for an opening paragraph on the ABC's website yesterday? Quote, Australian consumers have been told to brace for big hikes in their power bills after a watchdog revealed the true costs of overhauling the grid to deal with the renewable energy transition. Notice how the consumers have been, quote, told to brace for big hikes. Instead of telling Australians what they're being forced to pay for, Shouldn't the ABC explain why? But they can't do that because it would require them to explain their own climate ideology. And the ABC is way past that now. So instead, they just tell Australians, in other words, their own viewers, to cough up the, quote, huge increases in costs to keep up with energy transition, unquote. But at least they're admitting renewables are more expensive these days. For years, the ABC has been telling us that the transition to renewables made sense because renewables are cheaper. The catastrophe that is playing out in Europe right now proves this always was, and always will be, utter rubbish. The conflicts in the Northern Hemisphere are not over windmills and solar panels, which are essentially worthless. They're over gas pipelines and oil supplies, which have the power to enrich nations or, by being switched off, plunge them into darkness. Renewables are not coming to the rescue of the consumers and businesses in Britain and Europe who are facing a winter of freezing and going bankrupt in the dark. Only more oil, coal and gas can do that. Any day now, the ABC will be obliged to acknowledge the misery that an obsession with renewables causes. But will it present this as a bad thing for the people involved or a positive step towards the deindustrialization of developed countries like Australia? I guess we'll find out soon enough.
Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune in back, tune back in tomorrow night at 8 p.m. for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.